on the Legal Economic Nexus podcast, Michigan State University institutional economists Eric Scorzoni and Sarah Klammer explore the work of heterodox and institutional economists. Institutional approaches to economics have a long history going back over a century, but are becoming even more prevalent since the trauma of the Great Recession, global financial crisis, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. We will be interviewing current thinkers from the fields of economics and the law to gain insights into important new research, approaches, and tools to understand the economy. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 1 of the Legal Economic Nexus Podcast. Sarah, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How about you, Eric? I'm good. It's a great day here in East Lansing, but otherwise doing very well. A couple announcements. We have the, most importantly, the Association for Evolutionary Economics annual meeting in conjunction with the ASSAs, which will be in San Antonio, Texas, January 5th through the 7th. So we're looking forward to that. And we will be also presenting a paper there. So that'll be an exciting event to look forward to here in the next few months. So today on our first episode of season three, we have Luke Petak from the Belmont University Assistant Professor of Economics. Luke, how are you doing? Good, Eric. Thanks to you and Sarah for inviting me to be on the podcast. Very happy to be here to talk institutional economics with you all. We look forward to having this great conversation. So we'll go ahead and get started. First question. So you just published a paper in the Journal of Economic Issues, which is the journal associated with AFEE, called The Samuels-Buchanan Correspondence and the Lost Opportunity for a Positive Public Choice Scholarship. That's in the September issue of 2023. Obviously, this was a great article we wanted to talk about, partly because, of course, our podcast is very much inspired by MSU's own Warren Samuels. And of course, just a reference so people don't know, he's corresponding with the Nobel Prize winner, James Buchanan. So the first thing we wanted to talk about was what were they corresponding about? What was this issue? What were they talking or debating about? Buchanan and Samuels were corresponding about a debate that they had in the Journal of Law and Economics in the early 1970s. So that debate really begins with a 1971 article that Samuels published in the Journal of Law and Economics titled Interrelations Between Legal and Economic Processes. And basically, the debate deals with the two scholars' rival interpretations of an old Supreme Court case, so Miller v. Schoen, 1928, and they're arguing about what the implications of that case are for basically the relationship between legal and economic processes. So Samuel's title is pretty descriptive. The details of that case, just to sort of set the stage here, are basically that in the state of Virginia, there was a law passed in 1914, which empowered state entomologists to investigate and if necessary, condemn without compensating the owners red cedar trees within a two mile radius of an apple orchard. And so the reason for this is I guess that cedar trees can get some disease called cedar rust, which doesn't actually hurt the cedar trees at all, but it will basically destroy an apple orchard. And so the state of Virginia passed this law that basically said that they're going to protect apple orchards from red cedar trees. Red cedar trees are largely ornamental. And so plaintiffs brought suit against the state of Virginia and basically took it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled that the state of Virginia was well within its rights to basically decide that it wanted to protect one class of property in this case. More particularly, the court ruled that basically the state didn't really have a choice, that if it did nothing, it would be de facto 
protecting the one class of property versus by acting enabling the destruction of the red cedar trees it was protecting the apple orchard so that regardless of what the state did it was going to be favoring the property rights of sort of one set of constituents versus the property rights of another and so that it's not exceeding its powers by ordering the destruction of the red cedar trees this was the court's ruling because if it had not ordered the destruction of the red cedar trees it would have been de facto ordering the destruction of the apple orchard and so there's a conflict of property rights in either case and so this was the court case that buchanan and samuels were corresponding and debating about both in published papers and then they had correspondence with one another about the publications in the journal of law and economics can you walk us through a little bit Samuel's argument and the three principles specifically that he was arguing for and why they're important? So Samuel's argument in this case is, or I'll say that the sort of guiding principle behind all of Samuel's interpretation of Miller v. Schoen is that he's trying to explain why the government acts the way it does. So the first, the 1971 Samuel's paper is not, it's very clear that he's not taking a stance on how the government should act but just trying to explain why the government acts the way it does. And so he argues that this case illustrates basically three important facts about the role of government and specifically the role of law in the economy. So the first and law with respect to property rights in particular. So he argues that first, the case illustrates what he calls the necessity of government choice, right? That this conflict between the because government is the entity that allocates property rights, it can't avoid in some cases favoring some set of property rights over another, right? That it has to make that allocation of property rights. And, and in some case, that's going to empower one class of people to own some particular asset or to not or reverse to require that other people don't have property rights over something. So the government's necessarily making a choice, right? That doing nothing in this case would have amounted to making a choice all the same, right? That would have been choosing to favor the red cedar tree owners over the owners of the apple orchard because in effect that the outcome would have been the destruction of those apple trees had they not condemned the red cedar trees. So this idea that there's the necessity of government choice and part of the reason that this is the first of the three facts that Samuels emphasizes is he's sort of criticizing here the Pareto standard for evaluating policy or the Buchanan refers to it as the unanimity criterion. But his point here is that the unanimity criterion is neither a useful guide in terms of trying to be a positive description of how government behaves nor is it even a useful normative standard, because in cases like this, where there's a conflict over property rights, neither action nor inaction would receive unanimous consent. And so you can't possibly rely on something like the Pareto standard to guide government choice. So the necessity of government choice is the first principle. The second principle that Samuels emphasizes is he describes as the role of government as a dependent variable. And this is pretty typical of the broad field of public choice theory as associated with Buchanan and Gordon Tullock and others. Of course, Samuels having sort of very different normative convictions than them. But again, here, he's just trying to offer a positive analysis that given the necessity of government choice, right, the most one of the most important things we can do as economists and people interested in this legal economic nexus is to understand what determines the choices government makes, right? So if government faces this 
inevitable choice between favoring one set of property owners or one set of property rights over another, what determines the values it uses to litigate that conflict, right? And so he says, you know, the question comes down to who will use government and for what ends. And then lastly, the third principle he emphasizes is this interrelationship between the economy as an object of legal control and the fact that people will try to use the law as a means for seeking private economic gain. So the necessity of government choice, government as a dependent variable, and this interrelationship between legal control of the economy and people's attempts to use law as a means for private economic gain is sort of three principles to guide a positive analysis of why government acts the way it does. I'm just curious, I mean, how did you come across this? Was it, did you just read these articles by chance? Or I'm just curious how you found it, kind of what got your interest in this topic? Well, I've always thought sort of, even without really knowing much about public choice, going back to, so this is probably too long of a description for how I got into the article, but as an undergraduate, I was on my, competed on my college's debate team and sort of regulatory capture arguments come up a lot. How did Samos apply efficiency specifically, as we talked about in deconstructing this misapplication of rent-seeking theory that Buchanan is well known for, politics without romance, etc.? Can we talk specifically, I think we've covered some of this, but maybe diving into that a little bit more. I'm going to double back quickly for a second. And just part of this relates to the fact that in this debate between Buchanan and Samuels, what's interesting is the way that Samuels, like if you read the correspondence or even, so Samuels has this initial article published in 1971, then Buchanan's comment comes out in the Journal of Law and Economics in 1972, and then Samuels publishes a rejoinder. So we have these sort of three pieces, and then the correspondence between the two of them that encapsulate this debate. And the sort of an entire theme of the debate is Samuels insisting I'm just doing positive analysis and Buchanan sort of pushing back that he doesn't like the sort of positive. He thinks there's normative implications there. And Samuels is saying, like, I'm not taking a side here. And so he has this remark in his rejoinder to Buchanan's comment that he says, Buchanan is critical of me for describing legal economic reality when that reality fails to conform to his normative model. I thought that was kind of in the background. And this is sort of gives you a flavor of where his critique of rent seeking then comes from. So this comes from some of Samuel's later work. So part of the article that that I just published in the JEI, I give some illustrations for how Samuel's sort of framework can be useful in different applications and so why it still has contemporary relevance. And so one of these is he's pretty critical of the standard approach to wrench seeking. And part of that is he sees it is he's generally critical of static notions of efficiency typical of neoclassical welfare economics. And then particularly, again, the Pareto rule or the rule of unanimity that Buchanan's very fond of. To understand sort of his critique of rent-seeking, I'll just define rent-seeking very quickly for listeners here. I like a definition. Kurt von Seekum has a 2017 paper in the Review of Radical Political Economics where he actually tries to integrate this idea of rent-seeking into a Kolecian growth model, which is, I think, a pretty useful exercise. But his definition there, I think, captures the, the sort of core insight across the literature, which is the pursuit of a redistribution of income in which no new output is created, right? So devoting resources to increasing your income by redistributing it for somewhere else without creating new output. It's defined sort of in different ways in the literature. It sort of popularized the famous article by Ant Kruger, 1974, but that idea of redistribution without new, creating new output is the sort of definition that Samuels is reacting to. He basically has two criticisms. One smaller criticism, as he says, 
that this definition or understanding of rent seeking conflates economic value only with physical value and production, which any good institutionalist will know is not the only source of value. But the bigger critique here has to do with the way that static notions of efficiency depend on the property rights allocation. So you can think about like the production possibilities frontier. Think about just a too good world, the PPF from principles of micro. A given PPF is defined for a given set of legal rights. So if the purpose of rent seeking is to change the property rights allocation or the set of legal rights, effectively what you're doing then is comparing an efficient point on one PPF with an efficient point on another. Right? Both are efficient, but comparison of those two Pareto efficient points is meaningless as sort of Samuel's critique. Now, you could point out that in some cases, you, you might be able to identify a sort of Pareto inefficient shift, right? Something that's a, not a Pareto improvement, but both points are going to be equally efficient as long as they're on the PPF for that given set of property rights. And so the point of Samuel's critique here, right, this, this seems like, like this is a pretty theoretical point, but the point he's trying to make is that Rent-seeking theory, which I think has uses, is often used as a way to sort of hand wave away all government activity is inefficient or undesirable. And his point here is we can't do that because property rights specify efficiency. And so if you're altering the allocation of property rights, then you're fundamentally talking about comparing two different efficient positions. And so you need some other criteria to evaluate whether changes in property rights are desirable or not. So why did you include in your title the concept of a lost opportunity? What is this lost opportunity in your view? I think I sort of hinted at this earlier, but I think the lost opportunity is just to use public choice theory more broadly. I think it's largely been co-opted by people who have a free market normative persuasion. And I think economists who are not of that persuasion, those of us who are of institutionalist or post-Keynesian or even just progressive mainstream economists sort of have given up a, a pretty powerful analytical framework that doesn't necessarily have any built-in free market bias, right? And I think Samuel's work illustrates that public choice theory need not have this bias, right? I, I think he is, I think it'd be appropriate to call Samuel's, I mean, he's an institutional economist, but I think he's also a public choice economist. And I think sort of ceding that ground to only people of a free market normative persuasion has meant that people of other political persuasions doing economics has given up a powerful analytical framework. And I think that's the lost opportunity there. So we're going to move on to talk about a few of your other articles. You've been very prolific. So we want to talk about a few other things. You had an article looking at a neo-Hobbesian approach to local public finance, and you argued that there are groups who can exploit the surplus value created specifically by natural amenities. Maybe we can talk first about what is a neo-Hobson approach, and then what did Brian and Buchanan argue? What do you think they got wrong? And just generally about that article. So this is a recent piece in Constitutional Political Economy. So neo-Hobbesian, of course, this refers to Thomas Hobbes, the political philosopher famously known for describing government as a leviathan, right? And so this approach comes out of some of Buchanan's work and as well as Brennan and Buchanan. So Buchanan has a book called Between Anarchy and Leviathan, and then Brennan and Buchanan published The Power to Tax. And basically there, they argue for an alternative theoretical framework to thinking about tax policy. So the typical public finance approach to optimal tax policy is model the government as 
choosing tax rates to minimize the excess burden or deadweight loss of taxation subject to the constraint that they're trying to raise a given stream of revenues. And this is where you get all the optimal taxation formulas in public finance. Brennan Buchanan argued that a more appropriate model, at least in some contexts, for modeling how government sets tax rates is just to think about them as a revenue maximizing leviathan, quote unquote. So this is where the Hobbesian idea comes from, that rather than setting taxes to minimize deadweight loss subject to a revenue constraint, that really they're just setting taxes to maximize revenue. And I think Again, they obviously have a normative bias here, and we're gonna, I'll talk about in a second why I think they're partially wrong. Although I think they're partially right that I think it can be useful to think about what is the implied tax policy of government that's trying to maximize revenues would set. We all know that for various reasons, one, local governments might have these incentives, and two, there's times if local government's captured by various interests, it's not going to operate optimally. So, I mean, y'all are in Michigan, so it, you probably know a thing or two about that. Eric, I mean, I remember you've mentioned stuff about Detroit, and of course, we all know what happened in Flint. So that's the general two theories, the traditional public finance approach, setting taxes optimally to minimize deadweight loss. Brennan Buchanan just argue governments set taxes to maximize revenues. And so this generates a different set of predictions. So in this paper, I do two things. First, I argue that if you think about this in a local government, local public finance context, the government is not going to be able to set, even if they behave this way, they can't set the universal revenue maximizing rate because they're subject to a migration constraint, right? So people have to be in typical sort of models of location choice. People have to be indifferent from between different locations. And if you increase the tax rate on someone, that's going to push some people on the margin and move to other locations, right, in a very stylized model. And so this sort of migration constraint binds on local governments. This goes back to Charles Tebow, a very famous paper, people vote with their feet, they move to the localities that provide the optimal mix of public goods and public financing. And so I show that if you sort of work through the uh, revenue maximizing exercise there, you get a migration constrained rate. And the insight here is that if you allow for natural amenities, differences across locations, the model predicts that higher natural amenities will be related to higher local tax rates. So this makes sense. Natural amenities create utility rents for the residents. So if you look at someone living on the coast of California, there's natural amenities there that aren't there in the middle of Kansas or something, right? Like the beach, the mountains, whatever. And people are willing, there's some sort of value they ascribe to that. And the inside of the paper is that local governments will try to appropriate that value, right? Sort of one of the other places where I got the idea for this paper was a Twitter post that was at some time ago that I can't, I don't know who posted it, but it was just a picture of the California coast off Highway 1 somewhere. And someone said, California taxes are worth it. But it was interesting to me because there was no public goods in the picture at all. It was just nature. And so they're basically saying they're willing to pay higher taxes to have higher amenities, which, I mean, it makes sense, but I just thought that was interesting. So long story long here, the model predicts higher natural amenities will be associated with higher tax rates. I do some empirical exercises. This seems true. But then I say, I don't think this is the full story, right? And this is where I think Brennan and Buchanan are wrong. Because if there is this type of amenity rent, then different interest groups other than government are going to try to capture that amenity rent, right? Different groups are going to want a monopoly on those amenities. And so in the paper, I argue that one instance of interest group capture of amenity rents is Prop 13 in California. So Prop 13 was passed in 1978. 
It capped ad valorem tax property tax rates at 1%, but more importantly, it fixed assessment values. So it limited the increase in assessment values to 2% per year on the acquisition value of the home, right? So basically what this means is if you compare someone who bought a home in the same home in 1978 to someone buying that home today, the person who bought it in 1978 is going to have drastically lower property tax liabilities. So effectively, Prop 13 ends up being a massive subsidy to existing homeowners. And so I argue that this basically represents homeowners trying to capture a monopoly position on California's amenity rents at the expense of both renters and local government. So it's not just local government that's trying to capture these amenity values, that different interest groups will do it. And sort of one of the pieces of evidence that I point to to support this is that Prop 13 was litigated before the Supreme Court in 1992. So in a case, Nordlinger v. Hahn, and the court ruled eight to one against the plaintiff. They argued that Prop 13 doesn't violate the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. And basically what they said in very plain language is that the government can favor an interest group if the government has a legitimate reason to do so. And it's just, it's pretty stark because it makes very clear that basically what the, so Justice Blackman wrote the decision for the majority. He basically says, yep, homeowners have captured a monopoly position on California's amenity rents and we like it that way. And that's, that's, and so like, it's very plain language that this is what's going on. And so this also contradicts ultimately Brennan and Buchanan's interpretation of Prop 13. So they argue that it's like this ideal constitutional restriction on the power of government. No, that's not really what's going on. It's in fact that homeowners are using the massive power of government to transfer amenity rents to themselves and capture a monopoly position on those rents. And so that's, that's my, that's sort of the paper in a nutshell. Well, and I think you pointed out an important issue of the the conception of power by Buchanan is very one-sided. It's very sort of public power only. And I think as Professor Samuels would say, that's a that's a problem. And in this case, right, the idea that it's again, it's almost this one-sidedness where it's also power if you're limiting the public sector, right? That's an exercise of power. And so he misses that, right? That it's the same problem with Buchanan's preference for the unanimity principle and that it grants massive power to the status quo. So, it, right, even if the status quo is not optimal for some, and so spot on, that's the core of the issue in some ways. So your work also has a focus on income distribution and wealth inequality. Can you walk us through some of what you've learned from that research and whether you think the more mainstream discussion of those issues is on the right track? So a lot of my work on sort of income distribution and wealth inequality has been in the context of thinking about sort of post-Keynesian or classical models of growth and distribution. So this is a lot of my work co-authored with Daniele Tavani at Colorado State. So learned a lot from that research. I'll sort of try to highlight two things. The first is part of what I've learned from that research is that a lot of the discussion in that type of post-Keynesian literature is focused on this question of whether growth is wage or demand, depending on the paper, is wage or profit-led. So does a redistribution from profits to wages, so talking about the functional distribution of income, right? Does, does an increase in the labor share increase demand or increase growth or the opposite? And so there's a lot of ink spilled debating this in different contexts and writing down different models. And I think one of the insights from Danielle and I's research is that whether or not growth or is wage or profit led is almost the wrong question. The right question is, can we find policies that regardless of whether increasing the labor share increases capacity utilization, can we find policies 
that both increase the income of people at the bottom of the distribution and increase the overall level of economic activity. So the question is not about the sign of the demand or growth regime per se, but can we find policies that do both of these things successfully, regardless of whether growth is wage or profit led? So that's a question created by and concerned with this classical growth and distribution literature specifically. With respect to the literature more broadly, I mean, I think there's been a lot of good work on income and wealth inequality over the past since I've been an assistant professor, uh, people, including people in the mainstream, like, you know, all those guys at Berkeley, Zuckman and Syaz and everyone else are, are doing really good work and working with really cool administrative data, looking at variety of issues. And so I think that work that's being done is really good. I'd say the one sort of thing that I think maybe there's not enough emphasis on is a lot of policy work about inequality seems to focus on policies to reduce post-tax inequality or to sort of affect the distribution of income post-tax and transfers. I think institutional economics, sort of one of the core insights and of Samuels and of public choice theory, too, is that what matters arguably more is that pre-tax distribution of income. Thinking about how changes in worker bargaining power over the past 40 years have affected the pre-tax distribution of income. Thinking about changes in laws and norms or the rules of the game, so to speak, right, can influence the distribution of income before we even talk about the tax and transfer system. I think sometimes those types of changes are more durable and long-lasting. And so if we can start thinking about policies that change that pre-tax distribution, I think that would be the sort of ideal direction to go. What things can we do to increase bar worker bargaining power to help workers who want to join unions to... There's a whole universe of policies that we could think about to increase or to reduce pre-tax inequality. So, But I think more focus on that and less focus or not less focus, but it's good to think about optimal taxation and wealth taxation and marginal top marginal tax rates in the US have been falling pretty since the 1950s or 60s so and that's gone definitely gone too far and we need to re raise top marginal tax rates and all of the, that things that you see in the literature fine and good but i just think more focus on pre-tax inequality if i would change anything that's the direction i would go so we wanted to turn now to uh, you provided some interesting insights into the impact of and dynamics of religion specifically on the economy and vice versa and actually, this is a topic that institutional economists have thought about probably more than most throughout its history, including Warren, who wrote about that early in his career. One article you write in the conclusion, as religious social capital increases survival of low productivity firms, reducing productivity growth and amplifying geographic information asymmetries. Can we discuss this paper's like overall findings, why you were interested in this topic and like talking specifically about these two negative implications. That paper was actually a paper co-authored with an undergraduate student of mine, Aiden Powell, who now he's in the PhD program in economics at West Virginia University. So this was sort of a paper he wrote together as part of an independent study. And so it was something that he was interested in. And, and I tried to help sort of find a way that we could put it into a paper that we could get published somewhere. But I also have an interest in it. I teach an upper division elective here at Belmont called Capitalism and Religion, which part of which is sort of institutional or historical approaches. So we read R.H. Tawney's Religion and the Rise of Capitalism, which if you haven't read it, is an absolute must read. It's very, very good. And then we spend, so we spend about half the semester on that. And the second half of the semester, we spend on sort of the contemporary literature on the economics of religion, which is a growing field. And there's a lot of interesting work being done. And 
I think it's a place where a lot of institutionalist type insights are getting woven into otherwise fairly mainstream looking empirical work. So I think it's an interesting field to be working in. This paper was pretty straightforward in the sense that all we're doing is estimating growth regressions where we're trying to look at the effect of religious participation as just measured by the share of the population in a county in this case. So we're looking at regional growth, the share of the population in a county, members in a church. So we use the Association of Religion Data Archives data on church membership at the county level in the U.S. to look at this. And basically, we're, we're sort of looking at county level analog to uh, there's work 20 years ago now by Robert Barrow, who looked at religion and growth across countries. And so basically, we're looking at whether or not there's differences across counties in the U.S. And so we find similar to Barrow's findings at the country level, that there's a negative effect of religious participation on county level GDP growth. So the other sort of part contribution of this paper, or one of them is that I think we're one of the first papers to make use of this fairly recent series of county level gross domestic product that the BEA just started putting out. So we use that to look at the effect of religion on GDP growth. We find it has a negative effect. And so then in the paper, we're trying to sort of reconcile this with the fact that there's other papers in the regional economics literature that so show religion or religious social capital has positive effects on variables like business survival, right? So you think about how long the average business lasts in a local area. So how can we reconcile positive effect of religion on business survival with a negative effect on GDP growth? And our argument is basically that one possible mechanism is that religious social capital, just increasing business survival is increasing the survival of low productivity firms, right? That basically you can think about the old boys club at church is, you know, helping you get a loan and stay in business when you wouldn't otherwise stay in business. And right, and this is obviously good for that business owner and his or her employees. But in the long run, if that business would have been replaced by a business that was paying even higher wages or would have been more productive, this is bad for the regional economy. And so we provide some evidence of this mechanism. We show that religious participation is negatively related to both establishment entry and exit in a county. So they're overall less dynamic. And so we argue that this is the mechanism that explains why religion has a negative effect on growth at the county level. We're not arguing that this has always been the effect of religion on growth. So this is, we're looking at U.S. counties between 2000 and 2020. So there may be specific features to how sort of established religion is practiced in the U.S. and how that's changed over time. So there's some interesting papers that show like, there's a great paper in QJE by Felipe Caicedo. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, but it's titled The Mission. And in the paper, he shows that location, places where Jesuit missions were placed in South America, so Brazil, Paraguay, and one other country, I'm, I'm not remembering, in like the 1600s, 1700s, have higher levels of educational attainment, literacy, and per capita income today. So there are studies that find sort of positive effects of historical religious activity on growth. So I just want to be clear that we're not saying that religion always has to have a negative effect, but at least in our sample in the 20th century U.S. across counties, it seems to be negatively correlated with GDP growth. So going back to religious participation, and you here you look at a little different issue of the question of how religious participation can lead to misspecified results and sort of the capital labor relationship in that participation. Could we talk about that piece also? I just published a short piece in Economic Letters. So it's a short little article 
that basically there's this interesting stylized fact in the economics of religion literature that income and religious participation are negatively correlated. And so this shows up in two ways. This shows up both for individuals, sort of over, if you look at over the life cycle, there's this U-shaped relationship between age and participation where people are relatively young and not making much money. They participate more. Then as you sort of reach middle age and peak year earning years, your participation declines. And as people move into retirement, their participation increases. And so that's interpreted as basically the result of a negative effect of income representing higher opportunity cost of religious participation. There's also this relationship across countries, what's called the secularization hypothesis. So this idea that countries that are richer are less religious. And this is sort of a stylized fact, although there's debates about to what extent is the secularization hypothesis true or false. There's argumentation over it, but at least if you just look sort of first pass in the data, there seems to be this relationship. So in this short paper, what I do is I argue that, or I'm curious if at the individual level, the negative relationship between income and participation might be explained by just a substitution from sort of time-intensive methods of participating in religion. So going to church, spending time at other sort of outside religious activities to money-intensive or capital-intensive, right? So as your income goes up, do you go to church less, but you just give more money? Um, and so I use some survey data on religious attendance. So that includes religious attendance, giving people's income. And I basically look at the labor time equivalent of monetary giving. So you could think about given a person's income and their hourly wage, you can convert the amount that they give to the equivalent number of labor hours they have to work to generate that contribution. And then I compare that to just the time spent attending religious services and I show that it looks like at least that as income goes up, yes, you see that time spent attending religious services declines, but the labor time equivalent of monetary giving increases. And actually that more than offsets the decline in participation. So you get this substitution toward more money intensive forms of participating in religion. And so that's really, it's a short paper. So it's just that empirical result. But I note that you could think about this as having implications for a number of different things in the economics of religion. So in the paper, I don't even mention, but thinking about it, like this could explain changes in sort of the institutional form of religion in the U.S. and maybe why you see the negative effect of participation on growth. But more specifically, you could think about as just that negative relationship of participation on growth might be missing. It's not necessarily capturing a decline in religious belief, right? When we measure just time-intensive participation, if people are still believing but attending less but giving more money. So we want to think about sort of the full measure of religious participation and looking at those correlations like the one Aiden and I look at in that earlier paper. I think these are interesting issues that you're, you're tackling here. So since you and I are both alumni of Colorado State, we wanted to talk about Colorado State's got a long reputation as an institutional economics hub. And I'm just curious what your experiences were as a student. I mean, how did that shape your work today? Those kind of things. So I was really fortunate and that the time while I was a PhD student at Colorado State, Steve Pressman was a visiting faculty member. So Steve, long time at Monmouth University, institutionalist, post-Kansas State economist. Retired from Monmouth, but he was a visiting prof and taught in the grad program for three or four years while I was at Colorado State. And so I took a grad seminar on the political economy of inequality from Steve. And that was a very important class for me. And there was a strong institutional perspective there. At Colorado State, history of economic thought is required of everyone in the graduate program. And so this, of course, you, you get some institutional 
flavor there as well. And then you have my dissertation. So Colorado State is really a pluralist department in the best sense. So like my dissertation committee, like the three econ faculty members on it, were one was a sort of post-Keynesian macro growth theorist. One, Stefan Weiler, regional urban economist, but with a strong sort of institutionalist sense. Stefan's own advisor was George Akerlof. So he was very much like, and in some ways, Akerlof is one of the best mainstream economists for, I think, those sort of institutional insights uh, in a variety of not just, you know, his famous market for women stuff, but the gift exchange stuff, the identity economic stuff he's done recently. So, so Stefan had a very strong, like, I wouldn't, not necessarily explicit old institutionalist, but a very strong old institutionalist sense about things. And then Anita was her specialty sort of applied micro stuff, but also a very sort of strong institutionalist sense about stuff. So I think I was fortunate that Steve was there. I don't know that there's now like any faculty that are specialized in institutional economics explicitly anymore, but it's definitely a place where if that's something you wanted to study like that, you could do that there. And I think it's still one of the few places that you could go write a dissertation with an emphasis in institutional economics. And I know I've met some people. We were in New York City earlier this year, met some students going out to CSU who are definitely institutional oriented. So yeah, I would agree it's still there, which is good, of course. So in this podcast, obviously, we focus a lot on the benefits of a more institutional perspective. But we also like to try to cover some of the challenges of trying to study in that area. And we wondered what your thoughts were on that. I think it depends what you want to do and how you see old institutionalist economics, right? I mean, if you want to publish a paper like on Veblen or something, there's like two journals you can do that in. And there's a lot of ground that's already been covered. So I don't know. I don't know, unless you're a lot smarter than I am, like writing a dissertation on Veblen is going to be tough because I just think, you know, differentiating it in some way. And But if you want to do work that's sort of generally institutionalist inspired, I think there's a lot of outlets that you can publish that work in. And I also think there's appetite for those insights. So my advice would be to try and think about a way that you can sort of take and operationalize some of the insights from institutional economics to do really good empirical work. And that empirical work can look a number of different ways, right? So I think some of the work that Sarah, you and Eric have done on looking at these specific case studies and showing their usefulness in like applications for extension and the work you're doing, like that's an awesome application of institutional economics. But I think it's a small field. And I think also like you have to be realistic about if you're going to get a PhD, like you have to think about what are my job prospects going to be? You have to think about a way to integrate institutional economics into writing a job market paper that's going to get you a job. I mean, so you can't avoid that practicality, but there's ways to do it. So for sure, I think there's ways to do it. The other thing is once you get a job, depending if you're angling to be like a top R1 and all you're doing is publishing papers, I don't know how much demand there is for institutional economists there, but there's lots of places that will support you doing institutionalist work. I mean, I published a paper earlier this year on Veblen's views on sports and Cambridge Journal of Economics. I'm presenting a paper at the ASSAs on Veblen and gambling. So which Veblen saw a lot of parallels between gambling behavior and religious behavior. So there's a lot of interesting stuff there in his work. So you can do that work, but you have to think about ways to integrate it with sort of modern empirical techniques, I would say. We wanted to highlight your work in particular because we do think you're a great model for people that might want to do institutional economics, but still need to manage the realities of job markets and so forth. So that's so we uh, appreciate that answer. 
Well, I want to thank you, Luke, for this. This has been a great discussion we've had. I think we've covered a lot of great topics. And again, once soon as I saw the title of the article, I thought we need to get you on because you know Warren is our the founding figure behind this podcast. So again, we thank you for your time and appreciate you being here. Thanks so much to both of you. It was great to be on the podcast and look forward to listening to all future episodes. I'm a big fan of the pod, so great to be here. Well, thanks so much. Appreciate you doing that. 